Welcome to the Death Panel. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore, pre-order A Short History of Trans Misogyny by Jules Gill-Peterson coming January 2024 from Verso Books, or request them both at your local library. And of course, you can also follow us at deathpanel underscore. So I'm here today with my co-host, Jules Gill-Peterson. And first of all, congrats, babe. I saw that the pre-order link um, has finally dropped for your next book. So before we get started, can you just tell listeners about your new book that's coming in January? I would be delighted to. It's like the strangest form of hype. The you know the only tangible things I produce in the world are books. So um, it is true. <laughs> I, I have a book coming out in January, so you've got lots of time to uh, prepare yourselves. Uh, and it's called A Short History of Transmisogyny. You know, this is meant to be you know, this is meant to be a book that's not written primarily for an academic audience. So um, that may be something that appeals to folks. And basically, I'm a big fan of writing books where the title just says what the book is. So it is indeed (laughs) meant to be a short history of this term that, you know, has kind of been in circulation for a while, trans misogyny, an attempt to name and diagnose the particular form of of gendered and feminizing power that targets, I would argue, not just trans women, but a whole host of people uh, who are essentially kind of trans-feminized in different moments and cultures. And so I'm sort of interested in why trans women seem to receive the the most disproportionate forms of hate and violence, um, but also just the intense preoccupation so many people have with trans women and trans femininity Uh, not just in the United States, but actually looking at the history through which the West uh, in its colonial and capitalist machinations came to to describe and kind of congeal something like trans misogyny in its treatment of a huge host of different populations around the world. So it's kind of, um, let me call it a romp. If you want to go on a (laughs) 200-year kind of historical journey around the world from say, colonial India to uh, colonial Hawaii to, you know, antebellum New York City to Los Angeles in the 60s. Um, You know, I got a little bit of everything for you there, but it's really just sort of my attempt to reckon with and put some some real foundation to uh, just the extreme mistreatment of trans women and people associated with trans femininity, uh, because let's face it, that shit is fucking tiring. So it's also a book I wrote out of sheer anger and resentment. So if that's Aww. if that's a hook, you know, it may be for you. I can't wait. Hell yeah. Mm-hmm. And we'll definitely be talking about this more in the coming months. This is just the first of many teases, I'm sure. Anyway, I uh, I am really excited for our episode today. Thank you for running through that, Jules. Um, so for a long while now, you and I in particular have been talking between the two of us and sort of trying to think through ways that we can move some of our coverage here on Death Panel of legislative and state attacks on trans life beyond the frame of being reactive to current mm-hmm. events, sort of be forward thinking and forward looking. And I've been thinking a lot about the last two chapters in Health Communism, about the Socialist Patients Collective, um, yeah. also known as SPK. And about one of the ways that SPK sort of described some of their political project of um, political education, of attempting to really use political education and sort of peer relationships to 
turn illness into a weapon. And and what SPK wrote is that this is really ultimately a kind of collective process of translating uh, happy unconsciousness into unhappy consciousness with regard to really trying to understand like your life materially and uh, what your value really is in our political economy, where the capitalist state is built on, on layers of extractive abandonment as a way of sort of cultivating and honing ways of being able to critique and understand, you know, the systems and the bureaucracies and the processes and the different types of ideologies that all sort of structure what we experience every day as like the quote unquote healthcare system, right? Mm -hmm. So today, that's why we're going to be talking about something called managed care, specifically Medicaid managed care and why we need to abolish it. Not just managed care models, but you know, medical markets entirely, which we'll get to. Um, and there are a few reasons why we're talking about managed care today. One is that even as the Biden administration is overseeing the single largest moment of health insurance coverage loss in American history as a result of the deal that he made that initiated what's being called the uh, Medicaid unwinding, where millions of people, 4 million people and counting, are being kicked off of Medicaid, many of them for procedural reasons. And the majority of Medicaid enrollees are enrolled in what are called managed care plans that operate under the ideology that rationing is really good for you. <laughs> now, the second reason, and here's where the synthesis happens, is that Medicaid right now is also a major part of the landscape of gender affirming care in the United States mm -hmm. and plays this outsized and also under discussed role in gatekeeping care. So recently, there have been many state-level fights over gender-affirming care where Medicaid has become the battleground. We talked about mm. it in the context of Florida most recently on an episode, but it's happening all around the U.S. right now, um, from Idaho to West Virginia, and it's been happening for over a decade. I mean, there, I'm thinking back to um, the conversation I had with Dean Spade last yeah. fall where we revisited his book, Normal Life. You know, some of these issues that we're talking about today are things that Dean wrote about, you know, in 2014. So this is not new. Um, but while technically it's mandated by the ACA that Medicaid has to cover trans care, you know, in practice, that is often very far from the case. Hundreds of thousands of trans people are on Medicaid in the United States, to the best of our knowledge. I mean, we'll get into sort of what the data picture really is and, and how little of a picture there is. And again, a majority of Medicaid enrollees, 72% of people on Medicaid plans are enrolled in what are called managed care plans, which, you know, they take a very not unfamiliar approach to care delivery for death panel listeners. You know, it's rationing, gatekeeping, inconsistency, access in theory, denial in practice. And as we're seeing so many battles over Medicaid coverage for trans care being fought in the courts, and anecdotally, I hear from listeners who often, you know, have either been directly denied care through Medicaid or de facto denied through mm -hmm. gatekeeping, divestment by providers from Medicaid networks, wait lists, bizarre administrative requirements like you have to send photos of like the hair that you want removed on a weekly <sighs> basis to qualify Not for that, the, you know, shit it's just, again. oh God, you know, so it's 
sort of these bizarre administrative requirements, limited coverage networks, all of these ways that kind of care denial occurs that is less overtly visible as like a care ban, right? Like in the case of Florida. So we wanted to do an Evergreen episode that was critiquing the managed care model that really draws this hard line that recognizes how the marketization of health finance is a key driver and justifying logic behind austerity as this kind of population level force Mm. that statistically punishes folks on the margins of the economy. And then in particular right now, this is a really important hard line to draw when it comes to how we're thinking about trans care moving forward. And I just wanted to kind of say at the outset too, you know, this is something that I'm kind of moving into some more research on. So, you know, in future episodes, I'll have more to say about it. But I think there's probably a longer kind of historical story that could be told about how trans healthcare is sort of like the gatekeeping model of trans healthcare that, you know, we consistently critique um, on this show, how it sort of was ready made for the, the you know, the marketization of healthcare in the United States, but also probably, you know, kind of has had a symbiotic relationship to the larger history of managed care. Because if you, you know, I think often, or I don't know, prepping for this episode has really been eye-opening for me in part because despite being, you know, an expert in the history of medicine, I know way less about the history of insurance and insurance markets and even uh, the administration of Medicaid in particular. And one of the things that was just sort of like over and over as I was prepping, I was like, oh, wow, oh, wow, this all goes together. This all makes so much (laughs) sense. Because if we think about this notoriously Baroque punitive gatekeeping model of care for trans people that emerged in the 50s and 60s, primarily to keep people from transitioning, it had this kind of moralizing mandate. You know, there's a way we can kind of almost like overlay that on a story about cost control. And mm-hmm. you know, because the other main, you know, outcome of gatekeeping is that you keep people from using services. You keep people from getting access to procedures. And so in some ways, I think trans healthcare, although it wasn't necessarily a very large sector of the healthcare economy, and it still isn't that large, it, it really could sort of be a kind of, um, use a weird metaphor, but like a, a you know, a kind of shock troop, you know, to help mm-hmm. blast through more uh, public or, communal or socialized forms of care uh, and redistribution of resources towards this privatized model. And there just is a story, I think, to be told about the the Affordable Care Act uh, being basically, I think, again, I'll have more to say about this after I do my, my homework, but I think in some <laughs> ways really responsible for the emergence of gender affirming care as this ideological dress up where suddenly trans people have all this freedom. But what it really meant is that you know, by including and covering gender affirming care, that WPATH, you know, who we've also trashed on the show, basically became a paragovernmental organization <laughs> providing yeah. all these bizarre new um, administrative and bureaucratic procedures to private insurers and to managed care plans in the public sector like Medicaid. Mm-hmm. And just to say, like the symbiosis between private insurance and, and Medicaid has so been so important, even outside of bans on gender affirming care. Like here in Maryland, where I live, you know, often their fates go together. I was part of a group of people agitating at my employer to enhance 
the the private insurance coverage employees get uh, and grad students get for gender affirming procedures. And it was so clear that the fate of that um, set of demands and organizing was tied directly to the state legislature's very slow adoption um, of of coverage under state Medicaid, which the Democrats fumbled for a year and then finally eventually ended up doing. So there's just this like tight, tight, tight story to be told here. And I think one of the things that I'm excited to talk about is that so often when we go to talk about trans healthcare, we're sort of not even entirely sure what the landscape is because there's no uniform entity called trans healthcare. There's no single mm-hmm. data set or big picture. And so it's so helpful to have something like, uh, you know, Medicaid managed care, which has been studied very extensively and for which we have a lot of information to kind of provide a container and a context to really dig into um, what's going on and and the problems with the kind of best practice form of trans healthcare that supposedly is the opposite of it being banned. But I really think, you know, um, as we'll see here today, the fight is not just does your state Medicaid say nope, as in Florida, or does it say yep, as in Maryland? Things are a lot more complicated and one is not necessarily a total victory and the other um, still sucks. But, you know, uh, anyways, I just think there's so much exciting stuff to dig into here. Absolutely. And I think that that sort of lack of a picture, right, is really Mm. important to just you know, pause on for a moment, because Mm. as I said, we're kind of doing a synthesis here today. Like this episode came about because I've been doing research on managed care for this other, you know, long-term project that Artie and I are working on because managed care is really important in terms of understanding, you know, for example, like nursing home privatization and the shifts in privatization and consolidation of sort of, you know, what can help build the power of of massive um, academic medical centers. And there were so many points when I was digging through some of the research where my margin notes were like, talk to Jules, talk to Jules, talk to Jules, wonder what Jules thinks about this. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really kind of, we're talking about something today where there is a paucity of focus. You know, there is not mm. like a lot of people who are sitting down right now who are saying, you know, let's um, look at and study and examine the relationship between Medicaid managed care and trans care. This is a really, I think, interesting intersection where a lot can be done because we do not know very much. But what we do know from experiences, from listeners, you know, from friends I've heard for for years now, from, you know, the things like Sylvia Rivera Law Project, which, you know, folks like Dean Spade, when you, you start getting involved in like poverty law and Medicaid litigation and things like that, you start to see some record and evidence of mm-hmm. how common this is, right? Like, where, for example, a procedure um, covered by Medicaid might be like uh, HRT, hormone replacement therapy. Maybe you've got uh, estrogen or T-gel, right? Like these are prescriptions used by lots of people. So mm-hmm. a really common sort of theme that is often, um, you know, an issue here in terms of like specifically some of the ways that Medicaid managed care kind of moves against the law deliberately in reference to the ACA sort of like mandating that this coverage uh, be in place, but then it not actually being there is, for example, you know, there's this this history and all this documentation around a plan will cover estrogen prescription for a cis woman and deny it for trans people who are seeking the exact same dose from the exact same endocrinologist just Mm -hmm. on the grounds of like, 
you know, the, the sort of pre prejudicial structure and the values and bigotry that get embedded within Medicaid systems, right? And so what we're looking at today is kind of trying to look beyond some of these individual instances and look at some of the structure of Medicaid managed care itself to look at, you know, sort of how the, the marketization of care and how these public-private partnerships that are essentially sort of a proposal to the private market to, you know, learn how to make money off of the care of poor people by creating these kind mm -hmm. of margins and the way that exploded outside of HMOs and Medicaid managed care and really kind of dictates every single health insurance plan in the United States. You know, if you have a PPO, you have managed care, right? Mm -hmm. The idea of a healthcare network of providers, managed care is a hospital in network, is a ambulance in network, managed care. Formula, like, so this is a broader logic also that we're sort of trying to look at and piece apart, but this isn't necessarily like a place where there's been a lot of uh, examination or emphasis in the past. Mm, yeah, and I'm so glad you, you know, mentioned a couple of those examples because, you know, listeners know there are times that I am more Canadian than others. And, you know, one of them might be that, the vagaries of the U.S. healthcare system that despite living in this country for a long time still continue to just kind of, you know, elude my <laughs> capacity for understanding. Uh, a lot of them are illuminated through this concept of managed care. So I think this sort of just to set that table um, and then maybe we can talk about the origin of it, but like just to say, yeah, this to stress that this whole landscape of all of the things that usually get brought up um, as supposedly the quintessentially American disasters in healthcare, right? Um, high overhead, exploding costs, excessive bureaucracy, networks, uh, people, you know, being taken to the wrong hospital and being sent gigantic, all of these sorts of things that, you know, Americans apparently hate about their healthcare, but the ruling class loves so much. Um, I think a lot of which kind of I least remember learning about for the first time around the passage of the Affordable Care Act because it basically didn't disturb mm -hmm. any of this at all. Um, <laughs> yes. You know, a lot of those features are really uh, dependent on the rise of managed care in particular. And so it's really helpful to kind of historicize it a little, if only to do that unsettling work where it's like, oh, wait, <laughs> there, there weren't networks before? <laughs> you actually could go to um, any doctor you wanted, you know, if you could pay for it, not as if that was some sort of utopia, um, but that, you know, particularly managed care, um, you know, was a substantial shift in Medicaid itself, uh, but also just is part and parcel of this total, total marketization, insurancification, and the rise of these absolute behemoths, your Aetnas and your Anthems and your yada yada, other disgusting um, for-profit companies. So that whole system is really sort of part and parcel here. So we kind of have a, a kind of key, I don't know, I just feel like it's really, I, I'm finding it really helpful even just as a as a person who has to use U.S. healthcare, who has a PPO, um, to understand <laughs> what it means to know that a lot of the bullshit that I deal with, you know, is actually totally because managed care imperatives are the things uh, influencing my own experience. Absolutely, and I think often, you know, when we're discussing the problems with the American medical system, you know, which is far from being a coherent system and is, you know, yeah. it resembles a, a disorganized and parasitic series of, of markets, yeah. you know, like 
discussions about problems in medical care and its lack of accessibility tend to highlight a few of these like really persistent concerns, right? Mm. Like, for instance, there's focus on uninsured and underinsured rates, Mm -hmm. disparities, equity issues, inconsistent quality of care or standards, high drug costs, lack of transparency, uh, prejudice, ignorance, uh, hate being perpetuated under um, evidence-based medicine, Um, you know, along with the sort of costs and inaccessibility of medical education, of medical care itself, um, the allegiance to, uh, you know, their class, social class and and economic class among physicians, healthcare worker compensation, staffing ratios, you know, laws and court decisions that intentionally limit access to care for various reasons. Like all of this, right? Like that was a huge, huge, huge Mm. long list. And these are all really you know, important ways that this is this all constructs some of the most important parts of of our shared dialogue about the deficiencies in U.S. medicine, right? Like these are all very mm-hmm. common points and themes of the conversation about what is wrong, and and they are really important. However, like it's important to also recognize that none of these um, individual problems that I just listed, like actually exist in isolation and none of this occurs in a vacuum. All of this is important and true, but it's also all happening against what is going unnamed here, which is the unchallenged backdrop of the political economy of health and the way that medicine has become dominated by markets and market ideology. And so, you know, one of the ways that market ideology structures medicine is a concept known as managed care, which is really, again, why we're focusing on it today. So it's really just to put it most simply, like managed care is um, or a managed care model is a framework for healthcare delivery or medical care delivery that basically tries to control costs and improve efficiency. And those are the two main goals. Mm -hmm. And the way that that's done is by really tightly managing medical services um, through very meticulous risk analysis, by employing explicit rationing that is justified by, again, so-called evidence-based guidelines. And then the sort of third component is in these kind of like you know, prepayment schemes, right? Where you're like, mm-hmm. okay, we've got, you know, this set group of doctors and we've agreed on this price with them. And so these are the doctors that you can use. If you don't use those doctors, we don't pay for your care. So it's sort of mm-hmm. like how the the sort of segmenting is then structured. So broadly, you know, like the case for abolishing managed care is really the case for abolishing the commodification of healthcare and yep. like health capitalism, you know? And I think this is really important because, you know, when we're scrutinizing like how managed care models were like introduced and then subsequently ingrained in the American political consciousness, you know, the problem that was being discussed at the time was the sort of high costs of healthcare and what that sort of meant for really just like the sort of survival of the American economy. But really, ultimately, it was I think an important moment, you know, managed care starts to emerge, you know, in the sort of 60s, 50s. It's really sort of first formalized in 1973. Congress passes the Health Maintenance Organization Act and HMOs, also known as health maintenance organizations, which is sort of universally hated in American (laughs) culture, right? Like these are the Mm -hmm. first managed care products that hit the market. And so managed care itself is really kind of a rebrand of HMOs. Um, And it's about taking the logic of HMOs and sort of expanding it to all insurance products. And 
you know, I love the way that you you sort of the first thing that you brought in, Jules, because when I started sort of digging into these early years, you know, what's going on around managed care models, you know, in the years before the Health Maintenance Organization Act, you know, it's it's hard to see how insurance companies were not getting some inspiration from some of the gatekeeping methods that were specifically going <laughs> on. Um, around the formalization of like what trans care is, which doctors have authority over that care, and sort of who deserves care. And these were conversations that were happening very closely and very tightly with insurance companies. These were things that were on the mind of insurance companies, you know, in the 1950s and mm. during the rise of managed care. So I think, you know, there are so many deeper connections here that we can only sort of guess at and, and look at the, you know, interplay and reflections there because it's not like we know for sure that there is some like direct link between models of gatekeeping trans care and the idea for managed care, but there are shared logics that permeate both of these different ideas about, you know, who deserves care and how to provision and ration it. Yeah. Well, I think I, I have, I have a hunch <laughs> about what the connection is and it's a good, it's an evergreen death panel connection. It also calls back to an episode we did recently about the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act. I think the connection is welfare reform yeah. um, and it's worth seeing this because so when Medicaid is passed in 1965 under the Johnson administration, Medicaid is understood to be a welfare program. It's different than Medicare. Um, Medicare, you know, like Social Security is a program people have to pay into and it has this sort of, I mean, it is a welfare program too, but Medicaid was understood much more um, at the time as a, in the genre of redistributive welfare, such as it existed at all in the United States briefly <laughs> in the mid-1960s. And so immediately after Medicaid is passed, you know, there are calls for welfare reform. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there had been calls for welfare reform, you know, since the, the beginning of the New Deal in the 30s. But the, the fear of cost overruns was always tied to the fear and the moralization around dependency, that people who receive mm -hmm. benefits uh, become diminished, become reliant on government. And obviously Medicaid um, immediately became subject to that. And so, you know, who, who listeners, our good friend, who's our good friend who's going to appear in this story? Of course, it's Ronald Reagan, um, which you were just alluding to be as governor of California. And California is sort of one of the, at the end of the 1960s, one of the first places to really try and take up this HMO model and move towards managed care, citing a fear, you know, over the runaway costs. And of course, in the 60s, especially the second half of the 60s, inflation really was, um, as it is right now, kind of a very widespread economic phenomenon. Anyways, so they start moving towards you know, this idea, well, what if we paid up front, right? What if we just assigned a dollar <laughs> amount to um, and created these networks, right? And then we wouldn't have to just pay for whatever care people actually need and use. We could just decide in advance what they statistically ought to need and use, right? And so it's basically a form of welfare reform. It's not basically, it literally is a kind of welfare reform. But it seems to me that that's the connection um, because I've been looking a lot, you know, I won't go into excruciating detail, but say Stanford University's gender clinic, which emerges literally during the same time period in 1968, you know, this is a private 
a research hospital that's really kind of perfecting the brutal gatekeeping regime that they called rehabilitation, where to transition, you must be rehabilitated and not just into like a binary gender heterosexual person, but into a person who gets a job. Uh, a gender appropriate job, gets married and Mm -hmm. is not a burden on society. And there's this whole social scientific literature where economists and psychiatrists and police and social workers are all getting together and saying the problem, you know, with poverty, mental illness, with uh, deviant people like homosexuals and transsexuals <laughs> and, um, pe- you know, and uh, people who use drugs, right? People who have been incarcerated. The problem with them principally is that they're very expensive to society. And so the goal of providing services at the community level should be ultimately to get these groups of people to rehabilitate themselves, become self-sufficient and reduce their cost to the state. And in many ways, um, there are a number of social services that emerge in California, particularly San Francisco during this period that start to work with trans people on that basis. We're trying to clean you up, make you respectable, help you get a job so that you don't need to use public funds ever Mm -hmm. um, to support you know, your inappropriate proclivities. Um, And so I just really see welfare reform as the connecting piece here. You've got these doctors, surely at private institutions, they're not accepting any um, insurance, uh, public or private payments for transition, but they're elaborating and working with uh, social service organizations that do receive federal and state funds to basically create this idea of trans people Um, You know, trans people's experience of oppression as only meaningful to the extent that it makes them expensive to the public and makes creates a cost to society. And so alleviating trans people's suffering is a cost saving measure. And so you can imagine how rationalizing transition on that basis would lead towards a, a cost containment model where you want to give the least trans healthcare possible for the maximum benefit to the public. And that just seems perfectly aligned in this Governor Reagan on to President Nixon um, kind of moment uh, at the end of the 60s, beginning of the 1970s. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's so the the welfare reform framework is so key here. Right. And I think Mm -hmm. one thing that, you know, we could just pause on for a second that I think is important to talk about is like, you know, welfare reform this is an idea that like changes to welfare should be made in order to like with the goal being to like reduce the amount of people that are dependent on those programs. Right. So it's an ideology and a policy goal and a kind of policy language that is explicitly about shrinking the welfare state, about shrinking the safety net. And, you know, one of the reasons that this is supposed to be necessary is the idea that the welfare state itself, right, that the mere uh, meager gatekept support that people are offered under our capitalist political economy, that that support, you know, it reduces incentives to work. It produces, reproduces in a kind of viral contagion way, things like laziness or deviance or whatever. It's this kind of absolutely hysterical paranoia that the real problem of welfare programs is that they intensify poverty by kind of normalizing and and allowing it and not punishing people explicitly for being poor. And so what this really kind of 
becomes, right, is this idea called like the free rider problem, right? Which yeah. is the idea that like a market has failed when people who benefit from resources and like public goods and common resources don't pay enough for them or underpay. Like if there are too many people not paying their way as taxpayers and there are, you know, like these kind of outsized burdens where you have all these people using these public resources or using these common resources that are paid for by the quote unquote taxpayers, by the collective body politic and the we of the United States, that that kind of constitutes like an imbalance in the market and a failure of the market. Right. So the idea mm. that poverty exists, for example, um, or that uh, wealth is distributed unevenly in the United States is in and of itself like the free rider problems kind of proof. Right. Like they're saying, you know, the very existence of, of poor people means that libraries can't exist or like that those people are getting roads they didn't pay for or getting school they didn't pay for or getting health care they didn't pay for. So that's really important in terms of sort of understanding where the goal of cost and efficiency comes from is that really sort of and, and where the idea that this is good for people comes from is that, you know, these are the concerns of people who are approaching, you know, the design of things like the early HMOs, some of the first mm -hmm. HMOs, you know, these start to be designed like the first actual technical HMO, I think is in the 20s in California. And that's sort of like where some of those big arguments about economy of scale get, get really sort of solidified when it comes to health insurance products again. Um, but some of the earlier ones that start happening, 1910s, a lot of these have to do with, you know, paranoia about union workers who are maybe getting injured on the job really often and you mm -hmm. want to control costs. So you sort of introduce some of these prepaid health insurance plans that they are, they're putting together in the, the early 1910s. And the idea being like, you know, that it, it comes with a kind of logic of prevention and discussions around avoiding those costs because the group is all sort of prepaid and it also keeps the cost fixed for the employer. And the idea being that those workers aren't putting enough surplus value into the business in order to justify the benefits that they're being paid out, right? So the whole sort of framework of of, of welfare reform itself and the free rider problem is a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that just describes income inequality and wealth distribution and, you know, the ways that labor discipline iterates on itself. It doesn't actually describe like a real economic problem, but that becomes an obsession and it becomes truth. And that is the goal of what things like HMOs, what um, managed care, what rationing, sort of what these things are trying to, to solve is not that these guys are like sitting around, like, how can we torture people? Let's pull something out of our ass. Like, what if we <laughs> rationed everything? Ooh, hoo, hoo, that would be so fun. Like, they literally are so convinced that like, if they don't ration care, people will become incurable deviants and society is going to collapse. It is the most ridiculous, delusional bullshit, right? And mm -hmm. this is a serious, respected logic of health policy reform and taken so seriously. And when you sort of break out, what are the concerns here? What are the problems that they're trying to solve? It's like, okay, so you're worried 
a bunch by like providing people healthcare that you're going to sort of talk them out of working and they're going to be taking more than they need and that this is going to sort of ultimately be what collapses the system itself. What a perfect way to look away from the commodification of health, from the marketplace itself, from provider bias, from medical racism, from, mm. you know, the carcerality of the medical industrial complex. Look away from all of that. Focus on the individual. Focus on what that person is getting that they don't deserve. It's brilliant, terrifying ideological reframe. Yeah. And a very, very old and very American one that just will not. Uh, it's like the it's it's well, I was going to call it a whack-a-mole, but it barely is. <laughs> the the little whatever the creature is, is barely ever uh, retreating inside the hole. Um, but yeah, you know, I think one way to to even just put some interesting provocative numbers to that in terms of trans folks, because this was really interesting to me. I, I, I was, you know, kind of wondering to myself, I was like, okay, I wonder, do we even know what the rate of uh, insurance is amongst trans folks? And like, I don't, it seems like a dubious thing to figure out. But in any case, our friends at the Williams Institute have tried. So, you know, I'll, I'll look at the numbers that they have, but I was kind of fascinated you know, to find out um, that most of them, according to this study they did in 2021, they found that 90% of trans people have some form of insurance, which kind of shocks me. It's a lot. Um, but in any case, that doesn't really seem to matter because the, mm -hmm. the study that uh, also went on to find that, you know, okay, so maybe the vast majority of trans people have some kind of insurance, whether private or public, including Medicaid. However, only 56% of the people they surveyed had access to trans-related healthcare provider. So like barely half of them mm -hmm. <laughs> have access to any sort of trans healthcare. Um, and, you know, 82% of those people said like, well, no, I want to access a specific trans clinic or a specific kind of provider. Um, but the vast majority of them um, had not been to one of those kinds of providers um, in the prior five years to when they were interviewed. So I think that's a really good example, because if one of the key um, imperatives of managed care is that in order to ration that there has to, the, the, the precept here is that there is absolutely something called unnecessary healthcare, right? Just you don't need this. You don't deserve this. Some combination of the two, right? There are a whole bunch of things that you do not need. And we should create a system that essentially prevents you from accidentally or on purpose getting access to healthcare that statistically you don't need or deserve, right? And I think that this, this, these stats from the Williams Institute, to me, at least imply a little bit of a picture, right? That, you know, over half of the trans people who have some kind of insurance aren't actually even interacting with a, a provider that has any competency for the kind mm -hmm. of healthcare that they might need. You can't help. I mean, some of that has to do with the fact that there just aren't that many providers who do LGBT care and trans care for sure. However, some proportion of that is definitely due to this rationalization that trans people's use of healthcare is to some degree unnecessary. And that might be by labeling it cosmetic. Um, that might be due to just outright discrimination. That might be due to other barriers that keep people from getting access to or safely um, getting access to or requesting healthcare. But, you know, there, there, there's something, right, Some something in the, in the sort of black box 
box um, out of which we get this data, I think that is sort of filling in the space and starting to suggest the ways in which the managed care model might really impact trans people very hard. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think another thing that's really important to look at here, right, is if we look at, you know, for Medicaid managed care in particular, there mm-hmm. are specific controls where the federal government, where centers for uh, Medicare and Medicaid services, like they have um, some oversight and input in terms of sort of like what their adjustments and sort of what their payments are going to be and things like that and mm. how they make their risk calculations. There is this oversight that doesn't stop it from being extractive, punishing and austere, mind you. But, you know, it does <laughs> give us some information on sort of what happens when changes are made to the structures of plans in terms of, quote unquote, healthcare utilization, right? Like yeah. when we change the policy, materially what the fuck happens in people's lives is is really what we're talking about here so in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, CMS allowed states to propose modifications to their managed care contracts. Um, and I believe this was like outside of the normal window that they're supposed to sort of restructure these things. So it was like an emergency right. let's in response to the outbreak of COVID and the fact that it is, you know, again, managed care and Medicaid managed care. This is like a huge part of the funding pathways for nursing homes and for long-term care and institutional care in the United States, which is like a whole other conversation. But, you know, the the uh, response to like COVID getting started really was like, okay, well, like, let's allow these managed care contracts to sort of be renegotiated. And so they like implemented these like special risk corridors and they shifted some of the networks and sort of some of the market. And what happened? It decreased utilization, right? Like not just because people were like afraid to use care because there was a pandemic, right? But because you can you can actually see that when these plans become more austere, what directly results is that people cannot get the care that they have been promised, right? They cannot get the care that everyone else thinks that they are entitled to, and they cannot get the care that their neighbors assume they've already gotten, right? And that's part of how this works, right? Managed care is very sort of sneaky, and these denials happen in such a way where, you know, it's the kind of thing of like what you're saying, Jules, like, is there even a provider in your county, in your plan, right? Like, and sort of, you know, okay, so you have a great employer-sponsored health plan, right, that covers a lot. You have no provider willing to provide you with trans care. Okay, like, you have access to affordable care. Like, do you have your care? Absolutely not. Like, do you have a way to get your care? Not without paying completely out of pocket. And and of course, like, the further you get from an employer-sponsored health plan, whether that's an ACA plan or it's a Medicaid plan, or it's not having insurance at all, right? Like the opportunities for not accessing that care just get layered and layered and layered until you really see that, you know, yes, like the courts can very quickly sort of cut off an entire state's access to care. But Mm. so can an insurance company switching some of the ways (laughs) that it calculates risk or changing its provider network or changing its reimbursement rates. Like insurance companies, you know, they have control over the marketization of healthcare and they have this incredible power to sort of help reproduce logics of scarcity and reproduce the fact that the priority is always extraction to kind of solve this fake 
false fucking free rider problem that people are, you know, fixated on and believe is real that they have to correct. And insurance companies are so beloved in the American political economy and especially mm. the managed care model, you know, this is their crown jewel because they propose the ultimate way to sort of, you know, balance the free rider issue. And I think that is why we see so much resistance to disentangling um, health finance coverage, medical care coverage, things like health insurance from employment in the United States. It's mm -hmm. because, you know, we have this precedent. The welfare state does not exist in the way that it does necessarily in other countries. But what we do have is, is, is a welfare state that was available to sort of reform, right? And they did it precisely and excellently in a terrifying way. And it has completely structured the realm of political possibility for 99% of the people that are sort of authorized <laughs> to speak and talk about healthcare, right? Like if we think of, mm -hmm. the, of like the kind of people who, you know, have a lot of power and control, insurance company executives, health policy researchers, political scientists, people, you know, maybe working in CMS, like, of course, there are people who hate managed care, but there are also people who really believe in the free writer problem and mm. they think that the rationing is good and it's paternalistic bullshit, but they are true believers. And it can be really frustrating, but I think also really clarifying to sort of realize that. Yeah. I mean, that market imperative is just so, I mean, it's incredible because we, here we have Medicaid, ostensibly a public program um, that was welfare reformed through this managed care with its HMO precedent to basically use these nonprofit entities uh, as basically, you know, pass through entities to generate profit for healthcare corporations. It's kind of incredible. So on the one hand, you have this modality of managed care promising to the state you know, in general, we can save you money, we can solve your free rider problem. Oh, and also, we're going to take these public funds and route them directly into profit generating corporate entities that are increasingly acquiring, um, you know, most of the healthcare infrastructure in the United States merging into giant super networks and generating profits. So not only did we get this kind of austerity, you know, impact that is immiserating people. It's also now taking all these public funds to directly generate profit for, for private corporations. And so it's like, yeah, and I think this is a way to maybe understand part of the political economy of the fracturing of the states in this moment around these bans and regulatory bans on gender affirming care. I, we sort of started talking about this recently in an episode about Florida. I'm just really trying to, to raise some questions about the dominant framing in reaction to the loss of, of access to care in a place like Florida, where so much of the language really does end up trading in this kind of consumer model, like, well, you should leave Florida. Right. Mm -hmm. You should pick up and move. And of course, some people will do that. Um, but in this kind of consumer model, it creates, you know, that's an imperfect solution, obviously, because, um, well, what if you can't move or don't want to move? Frankly, why should you have to move? Um, but also, you know, I, I was reading um, a piece recently about Baltimore, where I'm based, where it's estimated by one estimate that around maybe 8,000 trans people um, this year might be relocating to Baltimore. 
principally from places like Florida. And one of the effects that that's introducing, other than the fact that I see so many glorious trans people literally everywhere now when I go out in the city, it's so incredible. But one of the other effects is that, you know, the one of the reasons people might move to Baltimore is not just the lower cost of living for the Northeast, but the fact that Maryland has state Medicaid coverage for gender affirming care. But there are very, very, very few providers. <laughs> that are in in the networks of these managed care orgs and they also have to share in some cases with private insurers so the the absolute waitlisting that is going on and the impossibility of seeing providers um, because they just have to take on a massively expanded pool um, of people who are relocating because they have lost access you know through Medicaid in a different state right this is this perfect encapsulation of how uh, a market approach and a commodity approach to healthcare doesn't actually work, right? It's not as if there is a real supply and demand logic going on here on, you know, it's actually just like misery begetting misery um, from one jurisdiction to another or from one quote unquote market to another. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And then if we start to look at sort of, well, how do managed care models deal with increased demand, for example, Mm. you know, you, you have like the idea of sort of reducing unnecessary medical expenses, right, quote unquote, unnecessary. Mm -hmm. Also, these rationing models don't just necessarily restrict care that they don't want to pay for. It also deals with, you know, the fact that the care is inaccessible spatially or there are too many Mm. people who need a provider that there aren't enough of, for example. So, you know, setting um, these kind of specific protocols uh, for seeking approval for procedures, you know, requiring patients to jump through hoops and administrative burdens, the reporting requirements of Medicaid, you know, the kind of um, prior authorization system, you know, these are all parts of managed care as a model as well. And what those also do, in addition to, you know, quote unquote, reducing costs, is, well, here's where the efficiency component comes in, right? Because then the question is like, well, do you have not enough providers or do you have not enough eligible, competent, quote unquote, beneficiaries Mm. who have jumped through all the requisite hoops in order to demonstrate that they're sufficiently deserving of XYZ care provided by XYZ provider that you claim Mm. there is a shortage of, right? Like, so if you see sort of how these things unpack, like, it's so easy to see this model as a way to exert control over the entire medical care process, you know, commodifying services, prioritizing profit, extracting surplus value, and also, you know, taking these cost-cutting measures, making them the goal, and directing our gaze away from, you know, different problems that point to issues of provisioning, planning, centralization, capacities of Mm. the medical system itself towards problems with individuals not meeting the requirements of bureaucracy. So it's like an incredibly important ideological transformation that happens when we start to think about sort of what is the specific problem for the, you know, example, for example, like the Baltimore Medicaid population seeking trans care, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and this is going to be, I think, something that You know, as we see, like if the problem of, you know, certain states restricting access to care like Florida is for folks to move. Right. Like you're sure going to see, I think, a lot more discussion of like provider shortages. And that's a problem that, you know, will need to be solved by some of these rhetorics that managed care offers, you know, a really great sort of existing structure um, to weaponize against um, the care that everyone is fucking entitled to. 
to, you know, and is actually supposed to be seeking. And I think, again, like this all hides in plain sight because on paper, if you're not familiar with, you know, the specific healthcare access needs of the Baltimore Medicaid community, then like, who are you inclined to believe? Like the expert <laughs> who says, look away <laughs> or, yeah. you know, and, and that's sort of also part of this as well. But I think most importantly is like, it's a very powerful tool of redirection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we're starting, I mean, I think there are ways to glimpse little, almost like corners of this behemoth of problems. Um, you know, the other example I was thinking of is California because Medi-Cal, which is California's state Medicaid program, is often held up as a kind of gold standard for gender affirming care, um, mostly because it has sort of the most inclusive coverage and probably has had that most inclusive coverage for the longest time. But if we start to really dig into what inclusive coverage looks like, you know, the picture is more complicated. You know, one of the examples that I think is always really helpful to bring up because it's like one of these things that even like as a trans person, sometimes you don't realize is, you know, if you go in, you know, for a consult for bottom surgery, um, you know, whether you're a trans man or a trans woman, you know, that might be covered by state Medicaid, that might even be covered by private insurance, but it's extremely rare, um, and no one ever tells you this, that for hair removal to be uh, covered. And, and there's a lot of hair removal that is required um, before you can be approved for bottom surgery, at least by an irreputable surgeon. And so it's very, very, very common in most places um, even if you have sort of Cadillac private insurance, but it's very common for people to be told, well, you have to go now and get all this hair removal done on your own. Um, and generally speaking, your insurance will not cover that. And that not only takes a long time and delays access to surgery, but it's extremely expensive, like mm-hmm. at minimum thousands of dollars for most people. So that's at, you know, sometimes your your insurance might say, well, I guess maybe we could reimburse you for that, but probably not until your surgery has been pre-authorized and scheduled, which is not going to be for a year or more. And so basically people are on the hook for all of this. Now, California and Medi-Cal is one of the interesting places that, you know, has been an early adopter of technically including hair removal as a form of medically necessary gender affirming care. Okay, great. Looks good on paper. But of course, they immediately ran into this issue that the amount of hair removal, you know, needed and the, you know, the paucity of of providers available, you know, relative to the people who might need access to this just created a problem. So managed care in the medical system came in and was like, don't worry, we'll just ration this, right? And so they set really restrictive limits on how much hair removal you could have done in a three-month period uh, and that would be covered by by Medi-Cal, essentially locking people into delaying their access to the surgery they want for a very, very, very long time, unless they're able to front massive, you know, costs out of pocket, which like if you're on Medi-Cal, presumably, no, you cannot just be coughing up thousands of dollars. 
Uh, and so that's a great example of how an inclusion, right, actually meets this market economy of scale instantly. And the response is never like, oh, I see, we're structurally failing trans people, <laughs> even when we're including something and expanding care. No, 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 it's great. Let's rationalize and ration this scarcity uh, and introduce all of these kinds of roadblocks, slow people down, gatekeep them even further, because we can kind of harmonize um, the cost saving measures um, without actually expanding the availability of the healthcare infrastructure needed to facilitate hair removal. It's just such a great example. Yeah. I mean, it's what is an incentive to work, right? Yeah, like, right. Exactly. Right? We're going to have to go out there and hustle to pay for this shit. That's an infusion into the economy. Every every <sighs> trans person that has to pay out of pocket for hair removal, that's money for the state's GDP. I mean, this is that mm-hmm. kind of this is why, you know, I think it's so important when we're talking about, you know, what are the problems with care? What's the problem with access to care? You have to literally not just look at the disparities, the the sort of distributional problems. You have to look at the provisioning. You have to look at the markets themselves, right? We have to look at the entire picture. What are some of the things that are actually sort of structuring this? You know, what are the ways that these companies are allowed to sort of do these things, right? What does this offer in terms of political power, for example, to perhaps lawmakers of, on both sides of the aisle who are either like vehemently anti-trans or really invested in asking questions? questions, right? Like Mm -hmm. to them, this is a kind of bonus. This is like, okay, we're going to make sure that we're avoiding the freeloader problem. We're going to make sure that we're not paying for trans care that, you know, is undeserved, you know, that the taxpayers are paying for, so to speak, right? It is the zero-sum framework that then establishes, like, the care of a small group as being weighted against the needs and the priorities and the preferences of a dominant group that has economic power and control, right? And then when you're sort of looking at it from that perspective, then every person's trans care becomes, like, a gift that sort of dominant cis culture gives to trans people, which is fucking awful and should be embarrassing, right? But this is the way that these lawmakers think about it. They think about sort of how the mere promise of access itself is such a gift that they've given people, right? Like the focus Mm. is not, you know, what are we doing wrong? How are people not getting the care that they need? The focus is like balancing these priorities that they have, that they believe are so real And they refuse to see the material consequences and what people's lives are actually fucking life because they don't Mm -hmm. care. You know, they really don't care because to them, you know, whether we get the care that we need or not, you know, the money that is extracted from us, that all goes on the balance sheet of the state. You know, whether we survive or not, whether we get our care or not as individuals, positive or negative, it's net positive for the state that is still money going through the economy, mm-hmm. you know, and and it's really important to sort of not lose sight of that fundamental truth when you're looking at healthcare and trying to understand why it doesn't live up to what it should and why medical care is not available when everyone thinks that it is. Right. Or when it is on paper, but it's meaningless. Yeah, Absolutely. I think, I mean, and, and to my mind, you know, it's, it might be sort of, interesting provisionally at least to put on the table for all of us to just kind of chew on you know some of the distinctions within trans healthcare here that could be really pertinent you know prescribing hormones is like 
the most boring, easy thing in the world. And and I think of all the forms of what counts as quote unquote trans healthcare, that's the one that's easiest to me to make an argument that there's really no need for it to be trans healthcare. Like you don't, you know, basically any provider, any primary care provider with a little bit of training who deals with their bias and bullshit should be able to give hormones to trans people and order the like few blood tests you'll need to get going. That stuff's pretty easy. And, you know, hormones just cost peanuts. And so it really alarms me, for instance, to see that one of the, you know, private market solutions masquerading as equity that we're seeing a lot of these days are uh, these subscription, these private subscription uh, healthcare services that mm-hmm. offer hormone therapy, you know, through telehealth. Uh, and basically can mail you your prescriptions. And they often tout themselves as uh, getting around access issues, particularly in rural settings, which sounds great on paper until you go and look at how outrageously expensive they are. They'll charge you like $100 a month to get testosterone or estrogen in these vials. Oh my God, these vials cost nothing to make. Like you're the mm-hmm. copay that for this should be like $1 if it's going to have a copay. It's like not expensive stuff. And they're basically gentrifying that um, and trying to fill this kind of gap through telehealth and calling it rural access and things like that, you know, which there are a lot of political implications, obviously, but it's sort of like, again, the solution is always this private market solution. And so that's sort of the hormone side, but I, you know, it's really the surgery quote unquote market that gives me a lot of pause here. And I think this is one of the places where, again, trans people's kind of perspectives on the immiseration of healthcare are really helpful because this is sort of one of these perverse ironies. You know, the United States obviously doesn't is not going through a good PR moment about um, trans healthcare. And yet uh, in a lot of countries that I know a lot of listeners live in countries with uh, national healthcare programs, you know, or public healthcare as it's, you know, sometimes called, a lot of those countries have really just like objectively terrible healthcare um, for trans people. And there's basically no access because the, the amount of providers available, particularly for surgery, is so astronomically low. And often, you know, what the sort of gatekeeping rubrics are for, um, you know, for public insurance coverage are uniform across massive jurisdictions uh, because it's not broken up into a million different healthcare markets like it is in the U.S. And so if you have a really shitty one, like a lot of Canadian provinces, or if you're in the U.K. under the National Health Service, you know, you might basically be shit out of luck. Like you cannot get phalloplasty basically at all under the National Health Service. It's effectively impossible at this moment. In Canada, there's like one, you know, everyone has to go to Montreal <laughs> um, when really each province has its own healthcare system. And so ironically, there are a lot of people outside the U.S. that still, compared to their national healthcare system, which does this kind of rationing, right, and basically still operates on this American model, um, the United States itself is still, <laughs> like, ironically, in the most perverse way possible, more attractive. Um, And one of the reasons why is that all surgeons are also not created equal. And I think that there's a version of this problem then within managed care as well inside the United States, because it's which surgeons are, you know, in this network or in in a Medicaid, you know, reimbursement in a managed care organization network, which surgeons do you have access to? Is it like one? Is it, are there a few? 
Um, do you want to go to them? Do they do good work? Do they do the kinds of procedures that you want with the right methodologies that are right for, you know, for what you're looking for or for your particular bodily capacities and desires, that's not always the case, right? And so very often, you know, people may find that they technically, you know, either their um, state Medicaid program, you know, covers the the surgery they want or their private insurer using um, a managed care plan also covers the surgery, but there's only one surgeon you can go to. And it's like, okay, but is that person any good? Um, and, and I know plenty of people who are like, yeah, technically it's covered, but I don't fucking trust this person. They have a bad reputation or the wait is too long or they only do this one particular style of the surgery that I want. And I actually would prefer this different methodology or so-and-so is much better. Um, and there are plenty of so-and-sos here, you know, who just don't take insurance and are still on that old kind of 1970s model of trans healthcare where it's like, whoever can pay the big bucks gets to go uh, uh, onto the operating table. And so I think in some ways to me, you know, um, surgery, gender affirming surgeries are really, really, really important case example in how the establishment of healthcare as a commodity is just a complete disaster from start to finish and how the rise of managed care as a principle is actually so thoroughly, um, you know, just messed up the basic principles of, you know, doing something like a surgery that it's had implications that are sort of global at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder if this isn't too obnoxious, if I could just read this one (laughs) part from Health Communism from our border chapter. But, you know, this is what's also really important is that we've been talking about the managed care model specifically within the context of the United States. Mm -hmm. It is not specific to the United States. It is a U.S. innovation that we have foisted on the rest of the world. You know, this is our this is our disease that that, <laughs> that we let loose. Um, and it has been primarily disseminated by insurance companies, but it's also you know had help, right? Um, so this is from our chapter called Border. Um, and I so just want want to bring in some of these like logics here, and we're going to talk about sort of like how this gets exported to the global South through uh, trade agreements. Um, all right, mm. so we write. Insurance companies abetted by a decades-long ongoing industry narrative that rising healthcare costs were a crisis to be managed by the intervention of private corporations led directly to the adoption of privatization schemes in a number of countries, particularly in Latin America. Importantly, the adoption of new private markets for health insurance in Latin American countries were not decisions primarily initiated by public demand, nor did the reforms involve much democratic procedure at all. Instead, the reforms were explicitly advocated by global trade bodies, the World Bank and other international financial institutions. The establishment of new laws allowing for private insurance companies to enter new states was made a condition to qualify those states for securing development capital. International financial institutions evaluating these developing quote unquote, economies for loans, systematically impressed upon them that their social services spending was out of control and that in order to qualify for lending, they would have to institute privatization reforms in this sector. As a result, a significant feature of reforms in this period is the privatization of numerous aspects of state welfare systems and the expansion of the managed care model of private health insurance corporations internationally. The result of this was the effective exportation of the U.S. principal model of health insurance coverage, a system already widely loathed by the American public. 
By remapping the political economy of health in ways that, quote, reduce public responsibility for the health populations, quote, privatize medical care and emphasize, quote, individuals and personal responsibility for their own health improvements and, quote, an understanding of health promotion as behavioral change. You really see like the managed care model be um, so key to sort of how this is implemented. And Mm -hmm. um, so we go on to say uh, before welfare privatization schemes were franchised around the world, the broad strokes of this agenda were explicitly laid out in the World Bank's 1993 World Development Report subtitled Investing in Health. Investing in Health laid out an expansive agenda for the reorientation of global finance priorities towards expanding the international purview of the health industries. Under this World Bank framework, public health systems, whether national health insurance programs or broader national health services, were labeled as costly and inefficient. The language employed is situated within what we've earlier described as the eugenic slash debt burden framework. Quote unquote, developing countries are said to spend too much on health services for too little gain. As the report says, quote, world health spending and thus also the potential for misallocation, waste and inequitable distribution of resources is huge. The report prescribes that, quote, governments need to promote greater diversity and competition in the financing and delivery of health services. Government financing of public health and essential clinical services would leave the coverage of remaining clinical services to private finance, usually mediated through insurance or to social insurance. So in other words, private health industries should be allowed to basically supplant and overtake welfare services with state provision of health care relegated to a kind of secondary or tertiary mm-hmm. function that's only available to populations that are not profitable markets for private industry. For Mm. example, in cases of extreme poverty, you know, judged under means testing, certain states of disability as judged by biocertification, or, you know, as uh, sort of populations that are quote unquote undesirable. So, Mm. you know, one of the things that I love about this, this report is that, of course, it really fixates on the sort of moral hazard of health insurance and of, of paying for people's health care. And here's one of my favorite, favorite quotes. This is from the beginning of the border chapter. So the World Bank writes, it is harder to identify individual risks and still harder to attribute them to behavioral choices. There is no market value for the human body and no possibility of abandoning one that is worn out and acquiring a new one. The lack of a natural limit on costs, since the asset being insured, the body, has no price with which costs can be compared, distinguishes health from other insurable risks. So that's the other thing here, right? There's a moral hazard implied in paying for trans health care that has to do with the kind of understanding of permanence and with the eugenic compulsion to reduce populations that we don't like (laughs) as a kind of broad, you know, project of this nation. You know, we as a country, the United States has helped to impose these logics of cost and scarcity on the world. We have taken welfare reform and we have sold it to everyone that would listen and to anyone that would buy into it. And we have forced and coerced countries to Mm. dismantle their welfare systems, right? And under all of that, whether we're talking about care for disabled people, care for poor people, care for trans people, all of our care, right? This is this is a threat to capitalism, ultimately. Mm. And what managed care seeks to do is to neutralize that. And that's mm. why it's so important to really sort of understand not just 
how these sort of models work and what the ideas are that underlie them, but also the the real kind of imperial legacy that they have in terms mm. of building the international sort of power of the United States also as a health authority, as mm. an authority on health policy, which I think, you know, this situation with the World Bank, these sort of moments that we're talking about where where managed care is sort of imposed as a condition of loans to countries, right, that are in the global south, like, this is many years ago now, right? Like, this is not yeah. recent history. This is many, many years ago now. And so if we think about sort of what has happened as those logics have become endemic, right? You know, mm. they're looked to as if it's as true as, you know, the sky is blue and gravity is real. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we could put alongside that the contemporary iteration of a global market in gender affirming healthcare, the kind of, you know, which I think the phrase medical tourism only begins to scratch at, but, you know, the, the sort of coming into existence of regimes in countries like Thailand, where a lot of Americans will go um, to get access to certain surgeries and different methodologies that they want, but also taking advantage of the cost differential um, and are often the care labor in those actual clinics. Uh, you know, some of them in Thailand, um, I'm referencing some work by Arun Azura here, you know, some of the care la labor for which those clinics are so well known is actually done by um, trans women. And, uh, you know, in some cases, those trans women themselves can't afford the very clinics that they work at because they have, you know, sort of switch their MO to be catering to uh, clients with US dollars or, or, or euros. So, you know, again, just these political economies of scale that have been uh, on the micro level here sort of, you know, have emerged to reflect some of these much larger macro uh, phenomena that you were just talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think also one of the things to just really sort of consider here is like when we think about managed care models, when we think about all the sort of ways that this can create other markets around them, right? This is yeah. also part of the business uh, model here is that in uh, the access disparities, opportunities for new markets arise, right? And this mm -hmm. is this is part of, um, you know, the momentum that this stuff has, that the <laughs> that the political economy of health thrives on and has grown um, because of the sort of terrible, tremendous momentum that this sort of lack of comprehensive care can produce also in additional mm. opportunities for growing markets and, and pathways for extracting surplus profit from people. And I mean, the, the kind of idea of like, you know, there is no way to replace the human body or rehabilitate it. So this is an <laughs> asset unlike any other, right? Like we see that held up by so many people, whether that's doctors sort of talking about, you know, their authority or their type of care and that's sort of what they do and their relationship to profit, whether it's insurance companies justifying something terrible, someone invoking, you know, healthcare as a human right, et cetera. Like sort of a lot of times our ideas about, you know, healthcare also revolve around the kind of idea that once the body's ruined, it's ruined. And that's a really mm. sort of powerful and terrible idea that, also is at the core of this, right? Like the idea of the disposability of the surplus of 
the kind of ways that, you know, medical care is made to sort of triage society, not just between workers and non-workers getting people ready to go back to work, but between people worth spending care on and too costly to continue to care for, right? Like this is all part of the broader logic that we're up against when it comes towards like sort of thinking about you know, okay, like, let's say this situation in Florida around Medicaid um, Mm. in three years is not a problem, right? Like, what landscape of Medicaid are we then left with, right? Mm. What happens to the folks who can't leave Florida to go move to another state? What kind of care are they grappling with in the meantime, right? These are the kinds of things that, you know, are why when we're also talking about things like Medicare for all, we have to be so explicit about it not being a managed care model, about it not being about reducing costs, about it not being about the freeloader problem, incentives to work, or who deserves what care. It's like, that's why these ideas are so important to sort of drill down to at the core. And that's why I hoped that in some ways this could be a kind of like more prefigurative conversation because in many ways, like this is just not necessarily either the focus of a lot of discussions on Medicaid or on sort of the category of like what to do on attack or about attacks on trans life right now. Mm. It's sort of like existing in a lot of ways, like in these different iterations. And so being able to take a second and like center that in the market ideology and sort of point towards perhaps maybe some ideas that folks who are like invested in health justice, but might not totally see how trans care like quote unquote fits into the picture (laughs) that they Mm -hmm. might also be able to take a step back and see here that this is also like, not just like an incredibly sort of tenuous and dangerous um, moment that we're, we're sort of working with in terms of health finance coverage in the United States. But this is also an opportunity. This is an opportunity for some like creative political thought and for some work to undo some of these ideas, like the ones we've been talking about that perpetuate it, that like are such ridiculous bullshit, right? Like just these imaginary um, sort of uh, skeletons hiding in the closet, right? Like the the waste, fraud, and abuse of of Medicaid recipients, right? Like these are <laughs> these are important tropes to grapple with that you know we talk about all the time on the show. But it's it's sort of hard to often see like okay, let's sit down and talk about Medicaid, go there, or necessarily focus on that. And I think you know when we talk about attacks on trans life right now, we give a lot of like power to individual discrete legislative actions and Mm -hmm. less attention is paid towards like, okay, so like all of that is very important. Right. And like, what else is there? (laughs) Cause it doesn't stop there, you know? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And for me, bottom line is, you know, the more I come to think of, uh, the material reality of what gets called transition as the gendered, class management of downward mobility, Um, because particularly for trans women, you know, choosing to transition just immediately begets a bunch of downward mobility in terms of uh, employment prospects and quality of life. But more broadly, because historically speaking, uh, not conforming visually to the, the dictates of gender make it really hard uh, to be employed in the formal economy and you know, really do lead to a lower a lower standard of living and often does cause poverty alongside 
disproportionate targeting by police and incarceration for certain kinds of trans people, then healthcare really has actually had this function for a long time of, of trying to manage downward mobility and reverse it, um, both you know aspirationally in some cases, but then at this level of policy and population level management that has been the purpose um, for which a kind of welfare reform version of trans healthcare has, you know, really kind of existed to, to do this, to make trans people more employable, more productive, more useful. Uh, and so all of that really, to me, hangs in the balance much, much more than whether a law says yes or no, um, mm-hmm. or whether a law says transgender or not. Um, and, and, and those are, I think, yeah, parts of the kind of political horizons that are so important and bring us back to that kind of touchstone, I think, in the way we've been talking about trans politics on this show, which is that obviously justice for trans people is, is an end in itself, but trans people's uh, sort of exceptionally baroque experiences of administrative burden and administrative violence are incredibly instructive for forming coalitional politics that uh, that see redistributive justice as their endpoint uh, because trans some trans people in particular have had a kind of uh, maximal perspective forced on them for a really long time and and so yeah I agree I think this is to me a really important conversation to be having in part because just to say right managed care swept in uh, in the 70s and 80s promising to lower costs and it didn't do that Mm-mm. you know maybe it kind of slowed down the rate of inflation in the 80s but it just hasn't stopped healthcare from getting more and more expensive every year and it never increased the quality of that care that's not what studies find it didn't increase access in any particular way in fact it explicitly tries to reduce access and so ultimately, that has real implications in the field of trans healthcare, where those cost costs have soared. You know, I, I read, you know, every day, you know, in my work about people say in the seventies trying to get access to surgery. You know, that was really expensive for them at the time. Being unable to work in the formal economy, maybe three or four thousand dollars. Well, those surgeries today can run sixty or seventy thousand dollars, and sometimes well over a hundred. Uh, and it's like, yeah. So there's also this like precarity that has to do with the history of political economy that is hitting trans people really hard. So this moment of gender affirming care and increased inclusion in some places, and that loss of that inclusion in others, is really only you know, maybe one dimension of a story that is much more complicated and robust. And I think what hangs in the balance really is this pivotal, pivotal question of how we come to articulate a demand for something like Medicare for all without uh, ourselves finding our imaginations constrained by cost containment in advance. Absolutely. And this is an incredibly urgent thing to spend time thinking about too because yeah. this is getting worse particularly in Medicaid um yeah you know we talked about Mandy Cohen new CDC director in an episode recently and her uh you know her role um as sort of health secretary in North Carolina and the way she was like yeah you know work requirements don't love them but they're on the table right. so you know it turns out those that the work requirements that she was like open to right like that is being incorporated 
into North Carolina Medicaid and friend of the panel, Eleanor Wade, who you and I and Phil spoke to very recently mm-hmm. about, um, you know, the Indian Child Welfare Act decision in the Supreme Court that came down this summer. Eleanor is working on a paper, finishing it up right now, t- you know, talking about that and, and looking at how Medicaid expansion since 2014 to groups considered to be like, quote unquote, undeserving poor to like healthy adults, quote unquote, um, has actually justified this like rapid uh, growth an infusion of market principles into waiver-based Medicaid expansion. Mm. So like a lot of the Medicaid expansion that we've seen, um, you know, grow since the ACA passed that, you know, President Biden is overseeing the undoing of like, you know, millions of more people than who gained uh, coverage under expansion. So this is like a moment of churn. And let me tell you, cost is on the table. It is a preoccupation of people right now who are working in these spaces and they are fucking vicious and brutal about the way that they think about this. And so these Mm. are things that are accelerating, that are getting worse right now, that are really important to sort of stop, take stock and think about and also consider materially and really sort of look at what are the things being claimed here and do they have any bearing to like to reality, to what I know through the experiences of healthcare that I know, maybe as a healthcare worker, as a user of healthcare, as someone who has friends who use healthcare, right? Like, we all know what it is actually like to experience these things, you know? And yet these sort of grand mythologies persist that can often justify and accelerate these tremendous harms, like you know, work requirements being added to benefit programs, the continued entrenchment of of welfare reform. And so this is something that, you know, is sort of been building for a long time. But as we were talking about, again, in terms of like specific changes that happen to managed care and Medicaid, like this uh, crisis that COVID has presented and that the ongoing COVID pandemic as like they're trying to impose this like early end on it continues to like present and make worse, frankly, this crisis is an opportunity for, you know, very austere innovations in health policy. And it's a really important time to be sort of taking stock and considering all of these things and also thinking very clearly and precisely about how exactly we move forward from here when it comes to any kind of quote unquote health policy or idea about how to get people uh, medical care. Mm-hmm. Well, and one, one galvanizing slogan that could, uh, that could organize or direct our, our attention would be abolish managed fucking care. Hell yeah. I think that's <laughs> the perfect place to leave it. Jules, this has been so much fun. I'm looking forward to hopefully many more conversations about managed care and maybe specifically we can, you know, bug Phil about maybe revisiting his book on Obamacare and Mm -hmm. talking about, you know, federalism, decentralization, and some of the things that people don't like to talk about, about the Affordable Care Act that are really important sort of things to understand about just not just the laws as they pass or as courts decide on them, but like, how are they implemented? And what happens when they go from law to like, law and practice, right? Which is also like a huge part of this. I guess the theme of these episodes is we're now teasing other content that we might end up working Mm -hmm. on, but uh, already feel free to cut this out. (laughs) 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 All right. I think that's the perfect place to leave it. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, 
pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore and pre-order A Short History of Trans Misogyny by Jules coming in January from Verso or request them both at your local library. And of course, you can follow us at deathpanel underscore. We'll catch you later in the week in the main feed. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.